0: Um, I get the privilege of of being on the the teaching team. It's one of the ways I serve uh, the church. I co-lead a small group with Randy Binkley as well. And every once in a while, I get the opportunity to kind of pinch hit. Uh, And today, I get to do that on uh, Solomon in our um, uh, kind of year-long process of digging into God's Word. Uh, before we dive into the the text in First Kings 1 through 11 this morning, I do want to be a little bit transparent with you about something personal in my life. Uh, the anniversary of my father's birthday is in two days. Uh, he would have been 75 years old. I won't get to celebrate it with him because he died on August 31st, 1993 at the age of 51. Uh, I'm 48 now, and so it is kind of surreal to be thinking I'm kind of entering into that window where he was at the last leg of his life. It's been almost 24 years now since I last celebrated a birthday with him. But even though a lot of time has passed, uh, I love him, I miss him, and I constantly think about him. He's on my mind almost all the time. For those who know my story, you know that I spent the first 19 years of my life apart from Christ. It wasn't until my freshman year in college that a gentleman by the name of Brad Blake, a friend of mine who was on staff with the Navigators at Mizzou, jotted down an illustration on a napkin at a restaurant that changed my eternity. On September 25, 1988, I asked Brad, how do you become a Christian? And he wrote out on a napkin something that's known as the bridge illustration. Uh, in order to try to make the gospel clear and easy for me to understand. The point I want to make is this, that after praying with him to begin my newfound faith in Christ, uh, for whatever reason, my dad was among the first people God would lay on my heart. What I didn't know at the time is that I would have fewer than five years to share my faith with him and show him how, um, how he too could have the personal relationship with Christ that I was having. Fast-forwarding a little bit, I was a couple years into that five-year window. This is between 1988 and 1993 when I discovered that my dad had a Bible packed away in storage. And it had note cards taped inside that went step-by-step through the verses of Scripture telling the great news of Jesus Christ and how one could start a personal relationship with Him. Surprised to see this, I remember asking my dad to explain it. And he told me that when he was in high school in the 1950s, he and a friend from church would go to the soup kitchen in town and serve homeless people a meal and would tell them about Jesus. And those were the note cards that he would use. Understandably, this led to a conversation about what had changed. Why, if this was true, was there no evidence of a Christ-centered life in him over the years that I had known him? And his response surprised me. He said, I guess I just got away from it. Somewhere over the 30 years between his soup kitchen days and my discovery of his dusty old Bible, my dad had drifted so far off course in his walk with God that the way he lived his life was indistinguishable from the life of a non-believer to the point that I couldn't even be sure if he really had ever put his faith in Christ. What happened? Did he ever have a saving faith in Jesus or was he just off course from it to a high degree? Well, at the time I couldn't distinguish, I do see from Scripture that it is possible for a person to start strong in his relationship with our Heavenly Father, but then drift off course to a life indistinguishable from one who has no faith at all. And we see this example in Solomon's life. Open up your Bibles to 1 Kings. 1 Kings, and the focus is going to be on chapters 1 through 11. Over the last three weeks, we have heard Randy Binkley and Tim Fritzen speak about Saul and David. You remember this slide from Randy's sermon. Today we're going to wrap up this part of the series that deals with the only three kings to rule a united Israel. Saul's appointment came as the result of an outcry from the people for a king following the era of judges. David becomes king following Saul's failure and is known as a man after God's own heart. And Solomon, David's son, succeeds his father as king and ushers in a time of unprecedented wealth and prosperity for Israel. All of this transpires over a period of time of about 120 years. Solomon's reign represents the last 40 of those years and about the first 40 of more than 400 years of history that's covered in First and Second Kings. So that's kind of the, the placeholder of where we are in Scripture. Solomon is an important Figure in the history of Israel. He was a man through whom God had planned to fulfill his promise to David to have a king from his line rule God's people forever. 1 Kings 2, verse 4, we see David sharing this with Solomon about a promise that God made to David. He said, If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, You will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. These first 11 chapters of 1 Kings depict Solomon's life, and it was a grand life. There were many other places in Scripture that pertain to Solomon, but for this morning we're going to focus just on these first verses in chapters 1 through 11. If you'd like to spend the week looking at some of the other passages, I've put them on a slide here. Uh, Don't worry about frantically copying them, though. If you want to spend some time in those passages, this uh, slide deck will get posted with the um, recording uh, probably on Monday or Tuesday of next week, and you can pull it up then. Solomon was a person blessed by God. Even a cursory reading of these chapters in 1 Kings revealed that in chapter 4, verse 29, we see that God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Then later in verse 34 of that same chapter, men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. And even toward the end of Solomon's life, we see the author of 1 Kings record in chapter 10, verse 23 and 24, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. No doubt Solomon was a person blessed by God. He was wise, he was rich, he was powerful. One could argue that no other person in history could match his success. But others could also argue that, yes, Solomon was a person blessed by God, but while he started strong, he finished poorly. You see, no matter how strong Solomon started, at the end of his life, in chapter 11, verse 9, the author points out that the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. And we see also later in Nehemiah, Chapter 13, verse 26, Nehemiah uses Solomon, but not to illustrate an example to follow, rather the opposite. He uses Solomon's life to caution the men of Judah about the dangers of becoming one flesh with those who do not know God and who would likely lead them to abandon God and chase after false idols. Nehemiah 13, 26 says, Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations there was no king like him, He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Nehemiah was so serious about the dangers of drifting away in this passage that that becoming one with non-believers so infuriated him that he actually beat men, if you read that chapter, and he pulled out their hair. Later, when I talk about ways that we can keep from drifting away in our own life, I want to assure you that beating people and pulling out their hair will not be among my strategies. (laughs) So what happened to Solomon? He did start strong in his relationship with God. In fact, I pulled out four verses from these uh, first 11 chapters that depict points in Solomon's first half of his 40 years on the throne. During this window of time, we see Solomon's devoted worship. 1 Kings 3.3 says, says Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense in the high places. He was a devoted worshiper with one exception. And the exception is actually a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Specifically, verse 4, Deuteronomy 12, verse 4 says, You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. And what God meant by this is when the Israelites were preparing to take possession of the land, there were people groups there who worshipped false gods, and the rituals involved acts of worship in high places. So this was worship done in direct disobedience to that directive from God. And even though Solomon worshipped inappropriately, it's interesting to note that his inappropriate worship, his disobedience to writings in in Moses' first books of the Old Testament, God still met Solomon with enormous grace. Because just a couple verses later, rather than saying, Solomon, I'm done with you for that, he says in verse 5, God appeared to Solomon and said, ask for whatever you want for me to give you. In the verses that follow, Solomon chose wisdom and God gave it to him in abundance. What a display of God's grace, even though there was a distracted devotion in the early stages of Solomon's life. Then after building the temple, probably uh, more importantly, at its dedication, we're still inside the first first 20 years of his 40 years on the throne, so the first half of his reign, uh, his prayer life reveals a closeness in his walk with God. This is in 1 Kings 8, 41-43. And it says, Solomon showed his heart for those outside the family of God. And you see this in the words of his prayer. Listen to his prayer, 1 Kings 8, 41-43. As the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, when he comes and prays toward this temple, do whatever the foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name. Solomon showed his heart for those outside the family of believers. He showed his heart for lost people, recognizing that as word gets out about God's greatness, after having built this temple, outsiders will be attracted to God's goodness. And guess what? In that attraction, they'll be drawn to Him. So Solomon says, Lord, answer their prayers, so they may know you. So they may have a relationship with you as I have a relationship with you. And he finishes this part of his prayer with a purpose. He says, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name. Lost people mattered to Solomon at this point in his life. They mattered to him because when a person walks closely and intimately with our good, good father, God's priorities become our priorities. And lost people are God's priority. One of my favorite verses depicting God's priority for lost people is in Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7 says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him, to these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. This is God speaking, welcoming the foreigner and guess what? We were all once foreigners. Not only did, did Solomon show his heart for lost people in this prayer, but just three verses later, he showed his heart for those inside God's family too. 1 Kings eight forty six 46-50 says, When your people sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them, if you have a change of heart and repent and they plead with you, And they turn back to you with all their heart and soul. Solomon asks God to forgive your people. Forgive all the offenses they've committed against you. Why? Because they're your people. They're your inheritance. In these verses, Solomon is praying for believers who drift off course. That when they turn back and repent, God would meet their course corrections with forgiveness. And guess what? God answers that prayer even today. God meets our course corrections with forgiveness. Last week, Tim stood up here and he talked about how we enter into eternal fellowship with God when we repent one time initially. But we also repent continually, Tim said, when sin pops up in the life of the believer. We should always rush back to an attitude of posture and repentance, Tim said. The first repentance is for our salvation. The subsequent ones are done in response to to the irresistible grace of the permanent and forever salvation we have in Christ. Solomon's prayer for those inside God's family is for the course corrections that get believers back on track in their relationship with our good, good Father. The irony of this is that in the second two decades of Solomon's reign, all the way to the time of his death, he slowly drifts off course in these chapters, and there's little sign of a course correction. Solomon finished poorly. In the last few verses of 1 Kings chapter 10 and the first few verses of chapter 11, we see the predominant reason Solomon finished poorly. His love of stuff and his drifting to the worship of the gods of his 700 wives ultimately caused his focus to drift off his relationship with God. You see temporal treasure has a way of distracting us from eternal treasure. And the love of the world has a way of drawing us away from our love for God. Shortly after the indictment of these verses, we read verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 9 in chapter 11, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. And after this final disappointing characterization of Solomon's life, we see the consequences of his legacy. Nations start to rise up, an attempted takeover occurs, he dies, and then the country tears apart almost immediately when it's in the hands of his son. Perhaps this is why Jesus, throughout his three-year ministry, said things like, Store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Why he told the rich man who wanted to follow him to sell his possessions and give to the poor. Why he said we cannot serve both God and money. Why he said we must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily, and follow him. I think our Lord knows something that Solomon, who prayed for and was given immeasurable discernment, failed to discern. On this side of eternity, there are only two things of eternal value that we can give our lives to. The Word of God, and the souls of people. That's it. Nothing else we can possess or attend to on this side of eternity will last forever. If you look at Isaiah 40, verse 8, Isaiah 40, verse 8, it says, The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9 is a good verse to illustrate this. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9 Paul says he will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. God's word and people's souls are eternal. If we are going to prioritize any treasure on this earth, why would it not be to treasure those things that hold eternal value? God's word and the souls of people. You know, in all my study of Solomon's life, one thing occurred to me that might be of value to all of us here today. If one of the wisest men to ever walk the earth can slowly, over a couple of decades, drift off course in his relationship with God, I think maybe we are susceptible to doing that too. So if we want to avoid drifting, what can we do to prevent it? There are seven verses that God has given us that help us know exactly how to avoid drift. I love the fact that it's seven simple consecutive verses. I can memorize it, I can dog ear that page in my Bible, and I can go back to it regularly. These seven verses include God's two cents on the matter and his five pieces of lettuce. I know that sounds weird, doesn't it? Actually, that's not what it is. I'm couching it that way because I want to make this memorable for us. These seven verses are so important to help us keep from drifting in our relationship from God that I want the discussion of these seven verses to be something you'll remember whether or not you're taking notes. And I think that couching it as God's two cents on the matter and five pieces of lettuce might make it memorable. You'll see what I'm getting at here in a minute. But let's finish our time with a healthy examination on the topic of preventing drift found in Hebrews. So open up to the book of Hebrews and turn with me to chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. It's fitting that these seven verses appear in this book because the author of Hebrews begins his letter in chapter 2 verse 1 by saying, We must pay more careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. So what are the seven verses that include God's two cents and five pieces of lettuce in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25? 19 through 25, and we start with God's two cents. Now it's cents, S-I-N-C-E, God's two cents in verses 19 and 21. It says, therefore, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. The first sense is that we have confidence to enter into the most holy place. This is a reference to the temple. Fitting, given that we're talking about the building of the temple and the dedication of the temple in Solomon's drift. The most holy place in the temple was reserved solely for the high priest, And he had to go through a host of preparatory acts that would ready him to enter the most holy place. In fact, symbolically, the high priest would tie a rope around his waist before entering to signal that even he lacked confidence to enter the presence of God. Should he be zapped dead because of his imperfection, others could pull him out by the rope. No one had confidence to enter. But the author of Hebrews is saying, but now in Christ Jesus, we are told we do have confidence to enter. Jesus died once for all and his reconciliation of us to God is so permanent that we are once and for all forever reconciled. We now have confidence to enter the most holy place, the place where God himself is present. We get to be face to face with our good, good father. The second of God's two cents is that since we have a great priest over the house of God, this access is continually and forever made available to us. It's not just seasonal. It's not for a short period of time or for a certain time of the day. It's anytime, any place, anywhere. God is accessible to us. The author of Hebrews is saying that since this is true for us who believe, let us Do something with it. And then he identifies five of these lettuce phrases. What he's reminding his readers and what he's reminding us today is that we can take for granted, because of how lavish God's grace is, we can take for granted that we have access to a holy God that we are not entitled to have. And if we really come to appreciate this access that we have, we should do this first let us. The first let us, as he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. The author of Hebrews is helping us see that this confidence we have to enter the presence of God means we should be entering into the presence of God. The byproduct of drawing near in our relationship with God, as we draw near, we will get to know God. And as we get to know God, we get to encounter Him in all His glory, in all His love, in all His faithfulness. Naturally, we grow in our love for Him and our intimacy and our relationship begins to compel us to live differently. This is why I believe Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If you are not compelled by Christ's love, you've not been drawing near to him. It's not possible to draw near in this confidence and not be compelled by this love, because his love is overwhelmingly compelling. And if you want to avoid drift, Draw near to Him regularly in His Word. Draw near daily. Carve out extended periods of time periodically where you can draw near to Him. You will find yourself echoing David's words in Psalm 27.4. I can promise you that. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. When we draw near, God is beautiful to us. The second let us, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, is let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Why? Because He who promised is faithful. You see our unswerving confidence is not in our ability to stay on course it's on his faithfulness another way we can avoid drifting is that if we are drawing near regularly an in intimate fellowship with our good good father and we are holding unswervingly to the fact that he is faithful that he will deliver on all of his promises then we will not drift away it's that easy This hope has a future orientation to it. It keeps our thoughts fixed on an eternal fellowship with the one who knows how to be perfect in his relationship with you. Have you ever experienced a perfect relationship? God's is a perfect relationship. And you get to have this perfect relationship forever. This is a hope worth holding unswervingly to because God is faithful If we have this as our habit, we will not drift. The last three pieces of lettuce are found in verses 24 and 25, and they have to do with our relationship with other believers. We avoid drift if we are engaging with other godly men and women in the following three ways. Verses 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, the other way we avoid drifting off course in our relationship with the one who would redeem us is that we engage other believers in a way that spurs or acts as a catalyst, motivating them to love more deeply and to serve more faithfully. A way to assess Our susceptibility to drift is to ask the question, do I act as a catalyst to my brothers and sisters in Christ to love others more deeply and to serve others more faithfully? We need to also ask, do I have people in my life who know me so well and love Jesus so much that they function as a catalyst for me to love people more deeply and to serve them more faithfully? Proverbs 27, 17, ironically written by Solomon, says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Who is sharpening you? And who are you sharpening? If you can't think of anyone in that role in your life, or you're not in that role in anyone else's life, you might be susceptible to drift. Get that fixed. Let's not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Join a small group. Approach someone to disciple you. Make yourself available to disciple someone younger in their faith. This church has as its mission to close those gaps in your life. Reflect on this and do something about it. If you're not engaging in this body of fellowship, you are missing out and you may be susceptible to drift. Actually, when you are spurring others on and you're not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, you're actually doing the final lettuce. You're encouraging one another. Our commitment to God's word and to the souls of people are a natural byproduct to a vibrant fellowship where you are encouraging other believers and have a future-focused, eternally-oriented worldview. The reality is, The author of Hebrews is asking us to increase in our doing of these things, not decrease in it. He says, do this all the more as you see the day of Christ's return approaching. I have a confession to make. A lot of the time, days will go by where I am not mindful of the fact that Christ could return right now. That part of my walk with Him is out of sight, out of mind, as I engage in the stuff of this earth and the temporary things. That is a wake-up call to me, that I might be susceptible to drifting off course. Do these things all the more as you see the day of Christ's return approaching. Solomon missed out on a legacy of making manifest God's glory through his life. God wanted to use him. But he drifted off course. The consequences of his drift were costly. We catch a glimpse of this in Ecclesiastes, where you see a sadness at the end of Solomon's life, looking back only to see that all the wealth and adoration of others is nothing but a chasing after the wind. In the last chapter of Ecclesiastes, Scripture is silent on this, but I picture Solomon writing it, possibly on his deathbed. Because it is in those closing verses that he writes to the importance of remembering your creator in the days of your youth. I think perhaps he realized how long he had forgotten his creator. And he was now mourning the lost opportunities that could have been his in his fellowship with his creator. As sad as that must have been, I do believe He did come back around to God. You see, you can see that in the way Ecclesiastes ends. Read that chapter and reflect on that. But I I can imagine that in God's unconditional and unfailing love, Solomon discovered as he crossed over to that forever fellowship with the perfect relationship maker, that God was there in all his glory to welcome him home. I had the privilege of being with my dad, holding his hand when he took his last breath. His last words to me were, I love you, son. I sobbed when he died. My sobbing was mostly because I never got the chance to see him madly in love with the one who saved me. But by God's glorious grace, a man my father worked with at the radio station, spoke at his funeral, and he said Jim knew he was dying. And because he knew this day was coming, he asked me specifically to share a conversation I got to have with him. And then with that, Mike O'Brien spoke of the relationship he had with Jesus and how he had shared that with my dad. He said that my dad wanted Mike to tell everyone at his funeral That my dad found Christ as lived out in Mike's life so attractive that my dad wanted that again in his own life. Mike said the two of them prayed together. My dad repented and asked for God to forgive him. And then my dad spent the rest of his time between that conversation and his death meeting regularly with Mike to learn more about the one who loved him with an unbreakable love. You see, I'd been 600 miles away from my dad during this window, so I didn't know any of that had happened. I didn't know any of that until I heard it at my dad's funeral. And I was sitting there with my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, and both of us had been praying like crazy for my dad, and our sorrow at his death turned to rejoicing. My dad is now 24 years into that eternally perfect relationship. And I hold unswervingly to that same hope. I thank God that He is faithful. As the worship team comes up here to lead us in our adoration of a good, good Father, I think it's important for all of us here to take a little bit of time to focus on our individual relationship with God. Are your priorities God's priorities? Do you find yourself having a broken heart for people outside the family of believers? Do you find yourself with this insatiable appetite to dig into God's Word, to draw near to Him through His Holy Word? While these songs are playing, sing, but also feel free to take a little bit of time to maybe just kneel and pray and get right on this topic with God this morning. And then after these songs, I'll come back up.